Okay, here we are, understanding your religion, the seven major doctrines that define the Christian religion. This is lesson number seven in the series. The name of the lesson or the part that we're at is the divinity of Christ. This is part two and the resurrection as proof. So this is a series I, you know, I, I kind of keep going. Uh, we, we overlap just a little just to kind of get everybody into the frame of reference. Uh, so in our previous lesson we started to talk about the second great Christian doctrine uh, in our series and the second great Christian doctrine is the divinity of Jesus Christ. First great Christian doctrine the inspiration of the Bible. Second great Christian doctrine the divinity of Christ. And we looked at the internal evidence, you know, the biblical evidence concerning this claim and we saw that very much like the first great biblical doctrine which was the inspiration of the Bible, the second great biblical doctrine finds its first proof within the Bible itself. It's not the only proof but it's the first proof. In other words the Bible itself claims that Jesus was divine and we examined several key persons who made this claim that was recorded in the Bible. Uh, for example the prophets who spoke of His divinity when they prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah. You know, gave you different scriptures on that. Psalm 110 and Psalm 16. Also the apostles who witnessed His miracles and resurrection, ascension, and then they recorded their experiences. We talked again about that in the last lesson. And, and never recanted under the threat of death and a painful death. They never recanted. You know, the basic uh, witness was, look, we saw what we saw. You know, beat me, shoot me, kill me, do whatever you want. It doesn't change what we saw. And that was basically their, their witness. And then of course there's Jesus Himself in His dialogue with different individuals who claims this about Himself. Even before the Jewish leaders who were trying to trap Him in order to find an excuse to, uh, to kill Him. We read in uh, Matthew 26, 63 and 64 it says, But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to Him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, uh, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. And that you know, proclamation, you know, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, I mean that's a claim of His deity. What human being could make this claim? You know, no human being would ever say, I'm sitting at the right hand of power, you'll see me coming on the clay. You know, if you're only a human being, this is not what you're, what you're going to claim about yourself. So I repeat what I said about the Bible's claim of inspiration. A person is free to reject the notion that Jesus Christ is divine. There's plenty of people in the world that say, yeah, I hear you, but I don't believe. You know, you're free to do that. But you cannot deny that this is what the Bible says about Jesus. There's a difference there. Okay, you don't have to believe it, but you can't, you can't reject the idea that that's what the scriptures say about Him. And we believe that. We choose to believe that. All right? So if you ask the question, what does the Bible say about itself? The answer would be, well, the Bible says that it is the inspired Word of God. That's what it says about itself. In the same way, if you ask the question, what does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that question is the Bible says that He is, among other things, the divine Son of God. Again, 
Just saying so doesn't make it so, but the Bible offers some unmistakable proof. Okay. Now the gospel writers, or rather in the gospel, the writers describe many of Jesus' teachings and miracles that support the claim that He was from God and He was doing God's will. However, many other prophets and servants of God, they also did miracles. They also spoke from God. They even raised people from the dead. You know, Elijah, for example, he raised a person from the dead, 1 Kings 17, 23. So if someone says, why is it that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What, what did He do you know, that makes Him so special, that makes you believe? And if you say, well, I believe it because of the miracles He did, or I believe it because of what He taught, or so on and so forth, that someone could answer, well, so what? Other prophets did the same type of things. They did miracles. They, did, you know, they raised people from the dead. And they didn't claim they were, from the son of, they were the Son of God. You know, what, what's so special about, about Jesus' claim? And so the answer to that is the sign or the proof that God provides to confirm Jesus as the Son of God was the resurrection. Okay? In Romans chapter 1, and this is a key scripture, if you're going to memorize some, this would be a good one too, or if you're going to put a bookmark in your Bibles or something, you know, a go-to scripture. It says here, Paul, or Paul is writing the book of Romans, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, now here's the money shot right here, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what sign, what definitive sign does God give concerning Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God? And Paul says here, the inspired apostle, the resurrection. He could have said the great miracles that he did, that's the sign, or you know, the, the teachings or the revelations that he gave, that's the sign, or the prophecies that he made about things that were to happen in the future, that's the sign. But he didn't mention any of those. He said the definitive sign that God gives, not man, that God gives, that Jesus is the divine Son of God, is the resurrection. Even Jesus Himself gave this as the ultimate sign pointing to His identity. In Matthew chapter 12, for example, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Uh, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus' opponents, you know, the Pharisees and others, were saying, well, if you want us to believe who you are, give us a sign. But when they wanted a sign, they weren't talking about you know, heal somebody from illness or cure blind, not that kind of a sign. They wanted a sign like Moses gave, you know, part the sea, stop the sun in the sky. They wanted a sign according to their specifications. And Jesus says, you know, after everything that he did, he said, you, you, people, you, know, you people are hopeless, you know, you're clueless. He said, there's only one sign that you'll get 
definitive sign that God will give you. And then of course, he says it in a cryptic way, the same sign of Jonah. Well, Jonah was three days in the belly, a kind of a resurrection, a prefigurement, if you wish, of the resurrections. The same way that he was in the belly of the fish through, you know, and then came back from the dead, so to speak. This is what's going to happen uh, to me. So both Paul and of course Jesus himself point to the resurrection as the definitive sign. So in discussing Jesus' identity, we need to look at His resurrection and the many ways that God used this particular miracle. Now we often say that Jesus had to die in order to free us from sin. You know, I mean, I've preached sermons, uh, you know, that very title, you know, why did Jesus have to die? You know? Well, in the same way, He also had to resurrect. Okay? So why did Jesus have to resurrect? Number one, Come on, help me. There we go. Uh, he had to resurrect to prove who he was. So if I ask the question, who is Jesus Christ? The answer would be, well, Jesus is the Son of God, or He's divine, or He is the Messiah. And all of these answers would be correct. This is who the Bible says that Jesus is. Now, if I were to ask, what proof do you have that He is divine, or that He is the Messiah, or He's the Son of God, what would your answer be? and I've already said this to you previously, if you said that your proof was the wonderful teachings, the many miracles, He was kind, He had no sin. If that was your proof, you know, those are pretty good. But your answer would be not wrong, it would be incomplete. Jesus did all these things, but the Bible doesn't present these as the final proof of His divinity, the sign that He was the Messiah. The Bible says that His resurrection from the dead, this was the undeniable event that God Himself established as the one true sign of His divine nature. That's why it's so important. You know, that's why always, if somebody attacks the Christian religion, they're always going to attack that particular thing, the resurrection, because that's the key. Our whole faith is you know, it's like a, an upside down you know, a triangle. You know, all the doctrines and all the information, you know, they come down you know, right down to a certain point, a diamond point, and that diamond point rests squarely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle explains this to the philosophers and the thinkers in Athens when he preached to them. And what does he say? In Acts chapter 17, he says, because, he's preaching to them now, and he says, because, speaking of God, because He, God, has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, how? By raising Him from the dead. So from the very beginning, the apostles always go, this is their go-to thing, to demonstrate the divinity of Christ. Okay, the genuineness of the religion, the power of the faith that they have. They always go back to the resurrection itself. Paul told them that the proof that God provided all men that Jesus was the legitimate Savior and judge was the res resurrection. Yes, of course, the miracles, the teachings, the life pointed to His true identity, but the resurrection was the primary evidence given by God. So, and this wasn't anything new. It's not like, oh, oh, all of a sudden we got something new here. Oh, the Bible is pointing to the resurrection. Boy, what, that's a new thing. No, that, that was not a new thing. 
The fact that the resurrection from the dead was to be the key sign pointing to the true Messiah and Savior was also spoken of by the prophets long before Jesus. Even the prophets said, you'll know the true Messiah because the true Messiah is going to, is going to come back from the dead. That's how you're going to know. Isaiah, for example, spoke of the necessary suffering, death, and the resurrection of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. Too long, but you know the suffering servant passages there. Okay? And Peter quotes David's Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11, where David prophesies that the eventual resurrection of God's righteous one. So the idea that the true Son of God, the, the true Messiah of the Jewish people, the way that people in the future would know that He was that one was through the resurrection. That's the, the prophets said this. They said a lot of things about Him. But this is the one specific thing that they said about him to look for. How will we know? That's the thing to look for. And of course, I read to you Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is where Paul you know, summarizes uh, uh, all the prophets and all the activity of Jesus and all the preaching of the apostles to that point. And then Paul summarizes all of that in Romans chapter uh, 1, verses uh, uh, Verses one, is it, uh, verses 1 to 4. Let me see. Yeah, uh, Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of prophets uh, are um, special servants of God. They spoke the words of God. They lived good lives. They performed mighty miracles, even raised people from the dead. Uh, many people have begun religious movements with millions of followers. You know, Islam, for example, what? How many, how many followers? You know, almost a billion followers in Islam. Many have died as martyrs, defending their causes, defending their gods. But only Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead according to prophecy made about Him. No one ever prophesied about Muhammad's coming. There are no prophecies about Muhammad's coming. There are no prophecies about the Buddha and what he would or would not do. None of the religious leaders, none of the great prophets of other religions have ever claimed that they were resurrected from the dead. Many have claimed they've gone straight to heaven. You know, Muhammad on the, on the, on the back of a winged horse off to heaven. But not even these prophets ever said about themselves that they had been resurrected. That's, that, that is strictly only in Christianity. So Jesus had to resurrect in order to prove that He was indeed the one true divine Messiah sent by God to save all men and spoken of by the prophets. See the Jews, uh, the, not all the Jews, but because many Jews obviously were converted, but the Jewish leadership, they would like nothing better you know, to uh, destroy the faith, nothing better to undermine this, uh, this, uh, this, this prophet, this troublemaker, this insurrectionist Jesus who was kind of challenging the status quo, who was calling them on their hypocrisy. They would have loved nothing better to break this down. And why couldn't they? Well, they never found the body, that's why. They, they couldn't destroy the idea or the fact of, the, of the, resur, uh, the resurrection. So when somebody questions your faith in Jesus and why you believe that He and only He is the divine Son of God, your answer should be that you believe because God has provided the resurrection of Jesus of His true identity. 
Will somebody laugh at you? I've had my cousin laugh at me. You know? My cousin is a you know, PhD uh, you know, from the Sorbonne in France, uh, works for the government, a researcher and all that kind of stuff. Very, very well educated. Actually two PhDs. He has two of them. And he begins his conversation with, remember, this is my cousin. We used to play hockey together as kids you know, in the alley for hours at a time. You know? So we grew up together. So he says, OK, Michel. Michel, we speak in French. You know, Michel, he calls me in French. Come on. He says, so we're speaking. He never speaks to me in English. He speaks to me in French. He says, he says OK, Michel, come on, come on. Yeah, come on. It's just me and you now. You know? Nobody's watching. None of your flock are watching you now. It's just me and you, cousins. You know? You don't believe in this virgin birth business, do you? Really? And I said, oh yeah. <sighs> you know, shaking his head as if like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As if I've spilled food on myself. You know what I mean? Really? And, and, and wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, the resurrection of Jesus. You believe that? I said, oh yeah. Oh. I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> He's disappointed in me. Is he in for a big disappointment one day? <laughs> so you can claim it, but remember, even if you claim it, doesn't mean people are going to jump on the bandwagon immediately and shake your hand. I just want to make sure that you've got the right argument for the right moment. When the moment comes that somebody says, why do you believe? This is the answer. Not your answer, not a quote Church of Christ answer. This is the answer that the Bible tells us to give. So he had to resurrect in order to demonstrate who he was. Secondly, he had to resurrect, uh, let me see, one more. Come on, work with me. There we go. He had to resurrect in order to demonstrate his sinlessness. Paul the Apostle summarized what the relationship between sin and death was. He said the wages of sin is death, or the wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. This is a core spiritual law. It's like gravity. Right? It doesn't matter if you agree with the law of gravity or not, and it doesn't matter if you know the, gravity or, uh, the, the law of gravity. The law of gravity works, right? I've given this example before. If a little kid thinks he's Superman and he's on the third floor on the balcony and he puts his special Superman cape on because he just saw Superman in the movie and Superman flies and he believes that he's got the magic cape, he climbs up on the railing and he dives off. What happens? Zoom. It doesn't matter what he believes. It doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter that he's innocent. It doesn't matter that he's mistaken. He defied the law of gravity. And by defying the law of gravity, he goes down. Well, there are also spiritual laws that are fixed. And it doesn't matter if you know them or you don't know them, that you agree with them or not, they're fixed. They work. And one of those core spiritual laws is you sin, you die. You sin one time, you've broken the connection between yourself with God. It's like breaking the connection. What was that movie there? Uh, George Clooney up in the air, he was a space, uh, well, gravity, right? Remember, the scary thing was, oh, if they break the connection and they get away from the module or the spacecraft, you know, he'll just drift away, right? That was the scary part, wasn't it? When, and those of you who saw the movie, 
you just see him drift away. There's no, there's no sound, there's no screaming, there's nothing. It's just, he drifts away. Well, it's the same idea. When you sin, snap, you've broken the connection with the source of life, which is God. And you just begin to drift away, drift away, drift away, drift away, drift away. That's the spiritual law of sin and death. So the result or outcome of sin in your life, my life, everybody's life, is the eventual decay and death of your body and the separation of your soul from God. Jesus was executed and when the Roman officials were sure he was dead, they put a spear into him and blood and water poured out, signifying death. They placed him in a tomb. Had Jesus gone straight to heaven from the tomb, many could have accused him of not being without sin since death had the last say in his life. In other words, they say, well, he didn't resurrect. He's still in the tomb. And the, and, and, and the law says, if you sin, you die. And there he is. He's dead. And he's, in the, he's still in the tomb. Therefore, he must have been a sinner. And if he's a sinner, well, he certainly isn't the son of God. He certainly isn't divine. You know, when I die and am put in the ground, there'll be no doubt that I was a sinner. My death will simply be proof that I carried around a sinful flesh for a short number of, of years. Had Jesus remained in the tomb, the same conclusion would have been drawn about him. Now someone might ask, well, what's so important about Jesus being without sin? That Jesus was without sin was important because in order to make a sacrifice good enough to remove all of our sins, that sacrifice, that life offered had to be perfect. It had to be without any sin. Why? Because of one of those spiritual unbreakable laws. Because forgiveness of sin can only be obtained through blood. Why? Because God made it that way. He made that law. There's no forgiveness without blood. A life. Adam forfeited his, his sinless life. He was without sin, but he forfeited his life. Why? Because he sinned. Snap. Drifting away. And in order to recover that life, a perfect life had to be offered. Okay? Paul says it this way, for as through, uh, for as through the uh, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Paul is referring to Adam and Jesus here and he says that by disobedience, which is sin, Adam forfeited his life, became subject to death, and through Adam all of his descendants became subject to death. So then Jesus comes along and by His obedience, meaning He was without sin, He's able to recover not only the life that Adam lost through sin, but also the lives of every other person after Adam who lose their lives in the same way. That's a long sentence. And so when Peter gets up on Pentecost Sunday to preach the gospel, he begins his sermon by establishing the fact that Jesus rose from the dead because death could not hold Him. It says, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Because he never violated the law of sin and death. Remember that core law, you sin, you die? He never violated that law. So if you sin, you die. If you don't sin, what happens? You remain alive. You remain alive. 
Now before going on to offer the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation, Peter demonstrates that Jesus through His sacrifice and resurrection could legitimately offer this gift. He offered the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus, come on, help me. Uh, Jesus had to rise from the dead to prove that His was indeed a perfect and sinless sacrifice able to remove the sins from our imperfect life. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this system of you know, atonement and we're going to do that in another lesson. Because okay? I want to I kind of drill down deeper into this fascinating idea. Okay? Uh, but for this lesson, suffice to say that without His resurrection, we could never be sure that what He did actually accomplished what He said He would. When I was baptized and the preacher who baptized me said, for the forgiveness of your sins are gone, Jesus you know, uh, atoned for all of your sins. Had He just stayed in the grave, <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure about that. But because of the resurrection, now I'm sure. Okay. Now I'm sure. All right, let's uh, do another one here before we get going. Number three, why did Jesus have to resurrect? To prove who He was, to demonstrate His sin, uh, sinlessness and all the ramifications of that. And then thirdly, to prove that we could resurrect. You like makeover shows? I love those makeover shows, right? You take someone and you kind of redo their hair, their makeup, whatever, their clothes, it's a remarkable thing, the change you know, that it makes. Now this type of program is especially effective when they're trying to sell exercise tapes or diet things and stuff like that. Right? You, you see it, right? But have you noticed what they do? They, uh, they, show, um, they show a video or a picture of someone who's maybe 200 pounds overweight, you know, big boy, 385 to 500 pounds, something like that. And then they bring him out after the weight loss and you see him you know, the before and after and you see the after. And I mean this picture here is like the same guy and I, I had to really kind of get my magnifying glass to see is this the same guy? He didn't even look the same. I mean he's thinner. You know, but look at his face. And they say that's the same, the same guy. And so after you see the after, right? Then they talk about the special diet, the special exercise book, the DVD, you know, whatever that got him those results. And what do you do? Well, you buy the stuff. Why? Well, because you believe. Why do you believe? Because you saw the transformation before your very eyes. That's why you believe. Now imagine if they showed the 500 pound guy on a video and then they claimed that he was down to 195 of muscle, but you had no picture, no credible witness, just the company's word for it. Imagine a makeover show like that. Hey, hey, remember Joe, 502 pounds? Well, now he's a buff 195. He's not here today. He's out surfing. But just take our word for it. I mean, we, you know, <laughs> I don't think they'd sell a lot of vitamins, do you? So the commercial would sound like this. Tony would love to be here to show how buff he is, but he's at the beach today. Uh, just call 1-800 such and such for your video and vitamin pack. I mean, it'd be a stretch, wouldn't it? 
Maybe some people would believe. Well, from the moment Adam and Eve were removed from the perfect harmony of the Garden of Eden, man's greatest fear has been the fear of death. He fears it because it's associated with suffering and the unknown. And people are always trying to deal with death in a lot of ways. They, uh, let's go, there we go. Um, they go into denial by living exclusively you know, to enjoy their existence here on earth. Or they try to be philosophical and accept the inevitability of death. You know, oh well, everybody dies. You know, that's how they handle it. But nobody has managed to come back from the dead. Not just an, an incident where they were clinically dead for a few minutes while their hearts stopped. I mean you know, dead, dead. Dead and buried for several days and then come back to tell us what the experience was like, what it was like to die and what it was like to come back. No one except Jesus Christ. And the good news that he brings is that we don't have to be afraid of death anymore because it's not final. There is life after the experience of death and his resurrection is the proof. So the Hebrew writer says it this way. He says, therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So because we fear death, Satan seduces us into all kinds of behavior that set our hope and our love in this world. I'm going to die, I better get as much as I can in this world because man, I don't know what's coming in the next world. I better, I better experience and gratify all of the things that my body craves because you know what, I'm going to die and who knows if I'm going to get that in the next world. Who knows if there's a next world? I mean that's pretty much how it works. That's how seduction and temptation works in this world. It's based on fear. Okay. But through His resurrection Jesus shows that death has been conquered and we can be free to look forward to another life, a better life than, than this life. And when I say a better life, you know, a lot of people they describe the life after this life in term, different religions. You know, they describe almost like the best that earth has to, ha to offer forever. You know, uh, ripe fruit and, and lovely women for men and you know, peace and quiet for women and uh, whatever. Yeah. But, the, but the better world, if sin is what puts us into the ground, I don't know about you, but for me, heaven, heaven is the place where there is no sin. I mean, other than that, you know, how will it look? I don't know. What are we going to do? Eh, I can only guess. But the reason I look forward to it, there's no sin there. There's no sin, no sinners. The relationships that I have with you, you with me, and you with everybody else will not be based on dealing with each other's sinfulness. To me, that's, man, that is heaven. We get to taste that every once in a while, you know, especially in the church, you know, the fellowship of the saints. A group of people who are trying not to sin and encouraging each other not to sin, yet we do so anyways. Jesus went one step further than merely proving that He had the power to resurrect. He also offered resurrection to everyone who desired it. What's He say? 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And do you know what the most encouraging words are in this passage here? The will of my Father. This is what God wants. He wants you and me to be resurrected. He wants that. So every time I'm a little nervous about my performance, every time I'm a little scared I might not make it, not good enough, ah, let's mess that up again. You know, every time I go through that dark moment, I come back to this passage and it says, this is the will of my Father. That means God is working to save me. He is working all of His things that He works so that the end result will be that Mike Mazzalongo will be in heaven. No reason for me to be afraid. So Jesus could have gone you know, straight to heaven to be with the Father and sent the apostles out to preach the resurrection for all believers, but without a demonstration it would have been a very difficult thing to believe. The apostles would have said, look, I'll do a miracle, I'll speak in tongues, uh, but uh, just take our word for it. He really did resurrect, but he went straight back to heaven. He didn't have time to stay for 40 days and you know, appear to 500 people. He didn't, no time for that. You'll just have to take our word for it. So Jesus had to resurrect to show us who are hard of heart and slow to believe that our resurrection would indeed be possible because His was possible. If He resurrects, then I resurrect. So the second great Christian doctrine is the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ. The Bible claims it. The resurrection is the proof of it. The eyewitness accounts of the apostles and the disciples record it. And the fact that neither the Jews nor the Romans could find the missing body and that even under the threat of torture and death the original eyewitnesses refused to recant. To me that's a powerful, powerful proof. And we also know that every attempt to destroy the Christian religion always begins by attacking these two foundational doctrines of the inspiration of the Bible and the divinity of Christ. Always. It's always where it starts. You want to destroy the Christian faith, you attack the inspiration of the scriptures, you attack the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. If you can destroy one of those two, the others are easy. Okay. So this is why it's important to know them and if we do we can then build confidently the knowledge of the other greats. Not the only great Christian doctrines but boy those are the two foundational ones and then we'll move ahead and go through the others as we go along. Okay. So that's the material for this week on this particular lesson. Thank you for your attention.